Well, we are going to declare God's presence uh, today in a really powerful way as we look at this idea of God not letting us down and what it means to be in dependence upon Him for every moment and every breath of our life. But it's going to be amazing as we look in Ezekiel today how often we miss the obvious. And it's one thing I think it's amazing for all of us is that you can be consumed by fear Everyone around you knows it, consumed by worry. Everyone around you knows it, have a real anger issue. Everyone around you knows it, but you miss the obvious. How is that that we can miss things that are so obvious right in front of us? Ezekiel is going to be asking that very question to us today in a way that is just stunning. I read a book uh, called Made to Stick. It's about creative ideas and how they stick And there was a journalism professor who was trying to teach her journalism students how to not bury the lead, how not to miss the obvious in a story. And so she gave this scenario for a college newspaper they were writing for in this assignment, and they were to not bury the lead. What is the lead story of this news story? Entire school faculty is going to travel to the state capitol on Tuesday for a meeting with the governor, Margaret Mead. All the students started writing. Some emphasized the background of the governor. Some emphasized the history of the state capitol. Some talked about what a prestige it was that their school faculty would be invited to this event. As they turned in all their articles, the teacher said, all of you missed the obvious. All of us? All of you buried the lead. What? You're writing for a college newspaper. What's the most important thing to your audience? There's no school on Tuesday. That's what your audience cares about. There's no school on Tuesday because all the faculty are gone. You missed the obvious. Oh. Sherlock Holmes and Watson were going out camping one day. And as they were camping together, uh, they they fell asleep that evening and and Sherlock woke up as he often does. And he he looked up into the evening sky. He jabbed and elbowed Watson and said, Watson, look up. What do you deduce? Watson looks up and he goes, "I, I see stars. What do you deduce, Watson? I see millions of stars, perhaps billions of stars. Watson, what do you deduce? Uh, uh, That there might be planetary systems there, much like our own. That there are many, many galaxies, and on and on and on. Watson says, no. Uh, Sherlock turned to Watson, no, no, no. What you should have deduced is, if you can see the stars, someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) Yes. How do we miss the obvious? Here's how Ezekiel is going to propose that question. If God was to withdraw his presence today from your life, would you even notice tomorrow? If God was to withdraw his presence from your life, would you even notice tomorrow? I've talked for the last nine months, one of the things God's been working in my life is on the area of self-sufficiency, that often I like to accomplish a lot, like to do a lot, and so I can depend on my own resources. And because of that, I wonder how often if God just withdrew his wisdom or withdrew his strength, withdrew his power, I wonder how long it would take before I noticed that he even left the building. How many... Times, if God withdrew his prayer answering power in your life, would you notice? Or, or do you find yourself praying safe prayers? Prayers like, God, thank you for this beautiful day. I hope to have a good day today, whatever that even means. And, and it doesn't even require God to show up. It doesn't even require intervention from God. And, and therefore, if God left your prayer life, would you even notice that he had left? 
Often we use God as a spare tire. We don't think about Him much until we have a flat. And then we're like, oh my goodness, I hope that thing's inflated. Or we use God like a crisis counselor. As long as life's going well, we're fine. We have a crisis, we call Him up. God needs some help here. Okay, great, got it. And we hang back up. See, God's presence, if we're really depending on Him moment by moment, minute by minute, month by month, there should be a real awareness when God's presence when we've stepped away from His presence, when, we're, when we've moved out of dependence upon Him. And I, I'm really excited about this message today and sharing it with you because I think it's something God's doing in my heart, which is teaching me increasing how to depend on God's power, His wisdom, His strength, His grace, His forgiveness, His thoughts for every moment of my life. And I, and I hope you can find the same freedom in realizing how important it is that we stay connected to Him as our vine. Again, he's going to use visual aids, two visual aids today in these two chapters. The visual aid of fiery coals and the visual aid of cooking meat. Both of which point to this idea of God's presence being lifted from the temple. Let's look at the first one together. Our first visual aid is fiery coals. And the fiery coals are going to illustrate that God's glorious presence and his glorious protection of Israel is about to be removed. Then I looked. And there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim, there appeared something like a sapphire stone, having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. Then he spoke, God did, to the man clothed in linen. Remember we talked about this man last couple chapters too, and we said, who is this mysterious man amongst God, amongst the angelic beasts? We said, we don't know. It's Jesus. And, and we were trying to figure out who this man is. And, and this man is told by God, Go in among the wheels into the holiness of God. Under the cherub, fill your hands with the coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. And these coals are the coals of God's righteousness, the, goal, the coals of God's purity, the coals of God's faithfulness. And he's going to set it on the city. And the righteousness of God is going to burn away all betrayal, all rebellion, all idolatry. And even here in facing judgment, there's one more opportunity for grace. Because God's going to give one more dramatic example of him removing his glorious protection to try and get his people's attention. And what's shocking is they're going to miss it. They're going to miss the obvious. And look how dramatic God makes us to get their attention. Now the cherubim were standing in the south side of the temple when the man went in with the coals. To get the coals. And the cloud filled the inner court. So we have a cloud. Like a foggy day. Thick cloud filling the place. You can't miss the cloud. Then the glory of God went up from the cherub and paused over the threshold of the temple. We have the very glory of God glowing in our midst. Pausing for a moment. So that it will catch our attention. And the house was filled. Not a little bit. Filled. The house being the temple. Filled with a cloud. Oh my goodness. There's cloud everywhere. And the court was filled with brightness. There's bright lights of the, of the Lord's glory. There's things to see. More than that, there's sounds. And there's a sound from the wings of the cherub, and it's a thunderous sound was heard, even in the outer court. The, like the voice of Almighty God speaking. There's sound, there's clouds, there's noise, there's brightness. God's Spirit is about to leave the temple. And everybody misses it. How do you miss it? It's loud. It's bright. It's a cloud. Here's how you miss it. 
you've got your back to the temple anyway. Because your heart's been captured by other people's approval of yourself, not God's approval of you. Your heart is caught up in good things, money, career, popularity. And because of that, it, it, it's just you don't even notice that God's leaving the building. Yeah, I'm sure there's noises over there, but it's a lot like when I, when I lived in Chicago uh, for our first year of marriage. You'd hear car alarms all the time. We'd go to sleep to car alarms for crying out loud living in downtown Chicago. At no time did you hear a car alarm and think to yourself, I wonder if somebody's car is being stolen. You thought, what kind of an idiot doesn't know how to turn off the car alarm? And the same way, God has got all the alarm bells going off. God is leaving the building! And people don't even notice. They're obsessed with pleasure. They're obsessed with other idols. They're obsessed with the busyness of life. They're so disconnected from God's presence anyway, they don't even notice when he's leaving the building. Would you and I notice if God began to withdraw his presence from our life or we began to walk away from him? I was doing a prayer retreat. Boy, I guess it was in my 20s. And I came across this verse in a paraphrase of the message that really struck me enough that I, I printed this verse out. I had it hanging on my computer for about 10 years. It's from Romans chapter 8 in the message. And it says, God is not pleased at being ignored. And it really struck me that it wasn't so much choosing wickedness that was drawing me away from God's presence. It was just ignoring him. He was in the list of a hundred priorities. He was just somewhere down there in the list. And by ignoring him and being obsessed with or connected with or having my imagination captured by something else, I was ignoring God and therefore I wouldn't even notice if, if I stepped away from him. Well, the passage continues as God's trying to get their attention. These fiery coals are saying, come on, guys, look what's going on here. It continues and says, then it happened. He commanded the man clothed in linen, take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim, that he took some of it and put it into the hands of the man clothed with linen, who took it and went out to the city. And the cherubim, who handed him the coals, appeared to have the form of a man's hand under his wings. So now, fiery coals are coming upon the city as God's presence is being lifted up and His protection is being lifted up and destruction is coming upon them. Several years ago, I came across this diagram that's been very helpful for me in thinking about how we live as followers of Jesus. And as best we can, James tells us when we draw into draw near to God, he draws near to us. And, and what we want to do is we want to operate in God's grace, which is I'm practicing certain disciplines, prayer, confession, acknowledgement that my identity is found in him. And as I'm doing that, I'm not only operating his grace, I'm experiencing his grace, I'm enjoying his grace, I'm enjoying relationship with him, and I'm saying the most important thing in my day is making sure I'm staying connected to his spirit. And I'm putting disciplines or habits into my life to make sure I'm walking his grace. Then there comes times in our Christian life that we begin to not practice those things. We begin to make bad decisions without consulting him. We begin to ignore him in some areas of our life. It's not horrible rebellion. We're just beginning to walk away from walking in dependence to him. And then we're walking in mercy. And I say mercy because if God gave us over to our debased mind or gave us over to our bad decisions, we'd have some bad consequences come in our life. But we're operating in mercy because God's not giving us what we deserve. That's mercy. And even though we're not depending on him, he's still protecting us. He's still watching over us. He's still trying to woo us back into grace. 
But there comes a time that you get from mercy to rebellion. And you get up to a place where God says, listen, I've kept my protection around you, even though you're not seeking me. I've continued to love you and look over you, even though you've you know, stiff-armed me. But I, I love you enough not to enable your bad behavior. And you're about to step over the edge into rebellion. And I want you to know that I'm about to give you over to your debased mind. I'm about to give you over to your debased lust. And I'm going to let you suffer the consequence. If you think that thing will bring you the identity and the joy you want, I'm going to let you try that out. And I'm going to remove my hand of protection as you step into outward rebellion so you can face the consequences and ultimately come back to me. And I think that's exactly where we're here in Israel. After 390 years of grace and mercy, God is saying, you're about to step into an area where my protection is going to be removed. And look at how dramatically he says it to get their attention. There were four wheels by the cherub, cherubim. When they went in, they went toward any of four directions. They were gyroscopes. So they could turn any direction without actually turning. In fact, because they can move in any direction, they never turned aside. Look at that phrase. They did not turn aside. He mentions it twice. Turn aside. They did not turn aside. And when these wheels went, they followed in the direction that the head was facing. When the head goes forward, we go forward. The head goes right, we go right. The head goes back, we go back. We're, we want to always be in step with the spirit of the head. And the whole body, with their back, their hands, their wings, and the wheels that the four had, were full of eyes all around, the all-seeingness of God. And as the wheels, they were called in my hearing... Wheel! What? First of all, I want you to notice that God is doing this really clever thing here. He's saying, these wheels know how to obey and live better than my people. The wheels always want to be where God is. They don't turn aside like my people turn aside. The wheels say, which way is God headed? I'm headed with God. I'm moving with God. I'm stopping with God. I'm moving forward with God. The wheels are doing what my people don't. But now these wheels are moving up with God out of the temple because God is literally leaving the building with his presence. And this phrase, wheel, it's like one final call. It's the equivalent today of saying, retreat. Or if you're British, run away, run away, run away. If you like Monty Python. This is God one more time of grace saying, come on, run away. Retreat! I'm leaving my presence. Come on, guys. Come on, guys. Do you see it? Call out to me. And he makes it even more dramatic. And when the cherubim went, the wheels went beside them. Look, wherever God's presence went, the wheel wants to be beside God's presence. And when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did. They do whatever the presence of God does. And they did not turn from them beside them. The cherubim stood still. The wheels stood still. When one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up. Why? For the spirit of the living creature was within them. Of course we're going to do what the spirit does. We're dependent upon the spirit. It's our lifeblood. We, we don't ever want to get ahead of the spirit or get behind the spirit. We want to be in step with the spirit. Now imagine if these wheels know what to do, if we really are made in the in the image of God, and if Corinthians tells us you and I are temples of the living God, how much more should we, with the Holy Spirit living in us, 
that he promises he will not withdraw. But at the same time, how naive is it that we don't stay in step with the Spirit as our lifeblood of our identity, the lifeblood of our wisdom? Or it's like, come on, God, why are you slowing down? Come on, God. Or, God, are we ever going to move? Or, God, I can't keep up. But the Spirit's moving. And I think what Ezekiel's doing here is he's, he's showing that the wheels are an example of how we should live our lives. See, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple, the threshold of the temple. It's leaving God's presence. And it stood over the cherubim. It's hovering there. And the cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. And when they went out, the wheels were beside them. They each went straight forward. So think of these massive, awesome wheels described in chapter 1. And God is saying, do you live your life like the wheels? When God moves, do you move? When God turns, do you turn? When God stops, do you stop? When God moves ahead, do you move ahead? Are you so dependent upon God for your life that if he moved in another direction, you would immediately notice? Or would it take you weeks, months, or even years to realize that you're no longer in step with God? I was out at East Fork Lake, and I had this sort of weird encounter that I felt like God was prompting me. And, and it started kind of weird because I was jet skiing along, pulling my son on the wakeboard. And, and as we came along uh, this section of, of the middle of the lake, I see what looks like a shark in the middle of East Fork Lake. Like, well, it can't be a shark, but sure enough, this fin comes up about this big, and it's moving. And I'm like, well, maybe it's a stick. It is not a stick. That is a living thing. And it is moving through the water. It's coming toward me. And it's 100 yards from shore. I'm like, well, it's not a catfish. What is that? And I'm, I'm just getting closer and closer to it. And as I get closer, I'm like, two fins pop up as it turns. Another fin. Now there's two fins. I'm like, it can't be two. What in the world is it? And as I get closer and closer, and, and fear and anxiety, it's like, what in the world? I, I get just close enough to it that I see it. And I, sure enough, it's a baby deer. And his little face above the water and those two fins were his two little ears. And I'm like, what? I didn't know a, a, a baby deer could swim, let alone a hundred yards from all directions. And I went from anxiety to suddenly compassion. Javen's like, we got to help the deer. And so we're steering back towards shore. Well, we parked one of our jet skis over uh, on the side so that we could uh, you know, ski together on one ski. And so I was uh, wakeboarding uh, for a while, and I gave Javen the signal, send me back to the other jet ski, and he turned a little sharper than I thought, and I didn't want to get back in the water, so I cut a little closer than I, than I probably should have. And it turned out there was a guy fishing who had put his fishing boat right next to where we put the jet ski. Bottom line being, I'm about 30 feet from his fishing boat as I you know, ski over to the jet ski, and he is not happy, for, for good reason. And he's like, I can't even jet ski, I think you guys own the lake, rattle, rip and bow, bow, filth and bow, bow, bow. And I sort of ski my way in. I'm like, well, my jet ski was over here. You didn't imagine the goodest ghost of his ever. So I'm swimming over. I get on the jet ski. And I'm like, that guy's got such a bad attitude. Oh, my goodness. I got, this is what's wrong with fishermen. So the fisherman boating uh, challenge here. And as I'm sitting on the, uh, on the jet ski, I realize God's saying, you know, Chad, you were wrong here. And after I got stopped being defensive and throwing accusations against him, I went, you know, I, we, we were really in, inconsiderate. Well, he's still... Blah, blah, blah. He's still written. So I get on the jet ski and start putting my way over to where he is, and he's still yelling and screaming at me. He takes a breath. Thank goodness he finally took one. And I said, Sir, what? I'd like to apologize. What? Jaw dropped. <laughs> I said, You are so right. We came way too close. I miscommunicated my son. I cut too close. Yeah, we're totally out of line. I just want to apologize. He's like, I mean, the whole demeanor of the conversation changed. He's like, 
Well, thank you. Well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. I said, yeah, really. I just want to say one more time. Yeah, we were off base. I was wrong. Um, and we shouldn't have done that. And I knew it was God prompting me because I wouldn't have come up with that idea. Um, <laughs> and, and I want to keep my heart tender toward God because I want God to regularly be able to mold, to bend, to suggest, to direct. Because if you get those promptings long enough and don't listen to them, eventually you sear your conscience and you don't even know when God's prompting you. And it's not because he stopped, it's because you've hardened your heart. You don't even know when God's not prompting you anymore. And I want to have that in my life. Well, the second and final analogy he uses, or visual aid, is he goes from fiery coals to moving to cooking meat. Here in the next chapter, it's the same analogy that God's protection is about to be removed. But he uses a little bit different analogy to do it. And he tells us why he's removing his presence. Because of the lies of, of the spiritual leaders. He says the protective pot is going to be removed. He says the lies of the leaders are this. Here's what the spiritual leaders are doing or saying. The spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house. He said to me, son of man, these right here are the men who devise iniquity and give wicked counsel in this city. I'll talk about where that is in just a second. They say, the time is not near to build houses. This city is the cauldron, and we are the meat. Therefore prophesy against them. Prophesy, O son of man. So what's interesting here is that Ezekiel's been saying ad nauseum, Nebuchadnezzar's coming back to destroy everything if we don't repent. So don't build your house, it's about to get slammed. The religious leaders are saying, oh, the destruction's not near Go ahead and build a house. Ezekiel, you know, he's always been a crab. Don't worry about him. That's not really speaking for God. We're like meat protected in the cauldron of this great city that God would never let be destroyed. Now, there's a real strange part of this because God tells them they're saying the wrong thing. But if you look at it, it says the time is not near to build houses. It sounds like they're saying the right thing. So whenever you're reading through your Bible, you'll see sometimes there's words put in italics. The words in italics are words that the commentator has added. In this, in this case, the words the time was actually added. But if you look at the Hebrew construction, it literally just says, not near, let us build houses. So the commentators added the time and two. So when you see that, you sort of get at what God's really saying. The wicked counsel they're giving is, not near, destruction not near, therefore build a house. The city is a cauldron and we're protected. We're never going to get hurt by Nebuchadnezzar coming. And God tells Ezekiel, no, 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 no. Prophesy against that idea. It's, those houses are going to be destroyed. It's not time to build houses. It's time to repent. And, and here's what would happen. Where those leaders were in the city is when you came into a city, there would be city gates. You'd walk into a city gates and there were always sections right inside the city gates where the leaders, the judges sat. When you came into a city, they would give you advice. They'd sit you down here, and you'd sit next to them here. And you'd provide for the, for the poor here. You would give um, advice here. You would unpack the scriptures here. You would do deals here. Think of Boaz and the Kinson Redeemer. They sat here with the elders. And so your first impression moving into a city was supposed to be God's values, wisdom, generosity, justice. So now the first impression people come as they come into the city is bad advice, injustice, you don't need to repent, don't worry about it. And God says, actually you do. You're lying to the people at the very city gates they come into. He continues and he says, it's amazing what God does here. God takes their analogy and flips it in a really clever way. 
He says, no, no, no. You think you're in a protective pot and you're the protected meat. I'm going to remove the pot because of what you've done to people by treating them like meat. The Spirit of the Lord fell upon me and he said to me, you have multiplied the slain in the city. You've killed children before your gods. You've used your power to have people destroyed who are getting in your way. And the mul- you've multiplied your slain in the city. And you fill the streets with the slain. I and mean, this is incredibly violent. The city has become incredibly violent. Therefore, thus says the Lord, your slain, third mention of slain, your slain whom you have laid in the midst, they are the meat. You're not the protected meat. Those you've killed are the meat. And this city is the cauldron. And I'm going to bring you out of the midst of it. I'm going to remove the protection. Anytime somebody was killed unjustly, God says the blood of the innocent cries out to him. If you think of Cain killing Abel, the phrase used in Genesis is the blood cried out for justice. And God says, I'm looking at all the meat of the injustice of the things you've done with your life and your influence and your history. And all that meat is crying out that you've used people, you've killed people. And because of that, I'm removing my hand of protection because of how you've handled and treated people in your life. The reason I'm withdrawing my presence and my protection is because of how you've treated the people in your life. And then he goes on to say, you're no longer going to have my protection. See, you feared the sword coming from Nebuchadnezzar. That's your greatest fear. But I'm going to bring that sword upon you. It's going to destroy your homes and your houses and your temple. And I will bring you out of its midst, out of the midst of the temple. And I'm going to deliver you into the hands of the strangers, the Babylonians. And they're going to execute judgments on you. You said you didn't want me in your life. You said you didn't want me to protect my life. I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to answer your prayers. You don't have me in your life anymore. And you're going to feel the full sting of not having my protection. This city shall not be your cauldron. It will not be your protection. You've been trusting in your walls instead of trusting in my presence. Nor shall you be the meat in its midst protected by it. I will judge you at the border of Israel. And even here you still see God's grace. And I'm hoping that as you feel the full sting of not having my protection, the full sting of not having my presence in your life, as you feel that, I am hoping that in the midst of that pain of hitting rock bottom and and not being enabled in your addiction and not being enabled in your rebellion, that you will go, oh, we have got to go back to the Lord. My hope here is not punitive as much as it restorative. I want you to know that I am the Lord. Not your idols. Not your statues. Not the good things in your life you've turned into ultimate things. Even in my discipline, my goal is relationship. To which Ezekiel is just like, oh no. Is there anybody going to be left? He says, yes, but I'm still going to keep a remnant. Thus says the Lord God, although I have cast them among the Gentiles, and although I have scattered them among the countries, yet I shall be a little bitty sanctuary for them in the countries where they have gone. Now this is stunning. If you were Jewish, you'd say, where is the sanctuary? The sanctuary is where God's presence resides. And if you're Jewish, there's only one place the presence resides, and that's in the temple. God's presence is in the ark. That's in the temple. So you go to God's presence to find forgiveness. You go to the temple to find uh, wisdom. You go to the temple where God's presence is to get right with God. 
And God is saying, you're going to be scattered all over Babylon, but I'm going to do something I've never done before. Instead of my presence being in one place, in one country, in one location, I'm going to give little sanctuaries, little doses of my presence while you're in Babylon. While you're in a culture that doesn't believe the way you do, while you don't have a temple, when you don't have a building, I am going to presence myself and sanctify you by making you a sanctuary. And it's during the time in Babylon that synagogues will be developed and God's presence will begin to be developed as people study the Bible in a way that's never happened before. It's God saying to you and I, fulfilled in the New Testament, that you and I would be a temple of the Holy Spirit, a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit, a little temple, a little sanctuary that God says, my presence lives in you so you're never alone, so you're walking in forgiveness. That's the promise he's giving. And he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put a new spirit in you. I'm going to take that stony heart that didn't listen to me and got calloused, and I'm going to change it into a heart of flesh that you will walk in my commandments and walk in my statutes. That's what God wants from us. If God withdrew his presence from you today, would you even notice tomorrow? Here's what I think is a key takeaway or question we need to ask ourselves. Is being in his presence better than all other presence in life. For you, you may have a struggling wickedness or rebellion. It might just be ignoring God. There's some presence, some good thing in your life that's become more important than God, and you've ignored his presence because you're obsessed with this present. It might be your status. It might be your career. It might be quarterly numbers. It might be whether your kids obey or don't obey. But something has become your identity. And God is saying, I want you to live in hunger for and desire my presence in a deep, deep experiential way. So maybe you like me, you want to confess and say, God, I, I just admit that I am not depending on your presence the way I should. I'm not loving your presence the way I ought. You've become an obligation. You've become a to-do list. You've become a check-the-box list. So we're going to end today with a song, and the song is called I Love Your Presence. As we stand to sing this song, and I'll prompt you in just a second to do that, I want you to use this time to either one say, God, I want this to be true and it hasn't been true in a while. Or maybe it has. Maybe you're living in a very deep, connected relationship with God right now. And make this song the outpouring of your heart as you say, God, I love your presence. And I want to know and be in step with your presence. I want to be that wheel that turns and goes wherever you go. Can we stand and sing together? I love your presence, the Lord.